0: This is A Word, a podcast from Slate. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. House ownership. It's supposed to be the foundation of the American dream. But for too many black families, bias can turn that dream into a nightmare. And that has robbed African Americans of billions of dollars in generational wealth.
1: We should assume that we are being discriminated against in the home buying process. When you go through the home buying process, I don't care how much you think you know, find an advocate
0: the so-called black tax for homeowners and how to fight it. Coming up on A Word with me, Jason Johnson. Stay with us. Welcome to A Word, a podcast about race and politics and everything else. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. In theory, the Fair Housing Act outlawed racial discrimination in all aspects of real estate way back in 1968. And practice. That bias is alive and well, and costing black homeowners thousands, even hundreds of thousands of dollars. Take the case of Paul Austin and Tanisha Tate Austin. The couple was stunned when their Bay Area California home was valued at just under a million dollars. A small appreciation for their purchase, especially considering they'd made major and expensive improvements. So they removed their family pictures and had a white friend pose as the homeowner for a new assessment. The result? A $500,000 increase in the home's value. Now, this isn't just a problem for the Austins. Research suggests that houses owned by African Americans are systematically undervalued, cheating black families out of the opportunity to build generational wealth. Someone who has devoted much of his career to addressing this issue is Andre Perry. He's a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, specializing in racial equity and metropolitan policy. He's also the author of several books, including Know Your Price, Valuing Black Lives and Property in America's Black Cities. And Andre Perry joins us now. Greetings, Andre. Hey, Jason, how are you? I think that the Austin case that we were just talking about got so much attention because of where it happened and just how much money, right? Half a million dollars was at stake. But how common is it for black homeowners to experience this devaluation of their homes? Like, you know, if your home isn't worth a million dollars do we still see this sort of devaluation happen?
1: Oh, absolutely. It's very common. I did a a report along with my colleagues, Jonathan Rothwell and David Harshbarger in 2018. We set out to assess that penalty, that black tax, if you will, levied against black homeowners and black communities. Um, And at the time, I remember talking with individuals and they would tell me how they knew that there was a price difference because they could look in the neighboring town. They also told stories of removing the books and clothing from their home and what we we, we now uh, call whitewashing the home in order to get um, the home appraised at a certain rate. But we really wanted to quantify that black tax. So in 2018, we compared home prices in neighborhoods where the share of the black population is 50% or higher. And we compared them to places where the share of the black population is less than a percent, uh, mostly white neighborhoods. And, and a lot of people will know that uh, without controlling, without addressing things like education and crime, those sorts of things, that homes in black neighborhoods are priced um, lower. In fact, without controlling is about 50% difference. It's about homes in white neighborhoods are on average priced about 340000 In black neighborhoods, on average, they're about half as much. But we know that people will say, that's because of education, that's because of crime, and all those different things. And so what we did, we controlled for education, crime, walkability, all those fancy Zillow metrics. Because we wanted to get an apples-to-apples apples comparison between homes in black neighborhoods and homes in white neighborhoods. And we wanted to, to get the intrinsic value of a home, of a property, remove all those other things. And when we did that, we found that homes in black neighborhoods, on average, are, are underpriced by 23%, about 48000 per home, accumulatively Black neighborhoods are losing about $156 billion in lost equity, $156 billion. But this ranges from metro to metro area because, as you know, metro areas differ. In In Lynchburg, Virginia, there's an 86% difference, 86% difference. So if you uh, helicoptered a home in a black neighborhood... You placed it in a white neighborhood with similar social circumstances. So similar crime rates, similar education, rate. It would increase in value by 86%. So to get to your point directly, yes, there are not five cases all over the country that are 500,000, you know, what we saw in Marin County, but 30,000, 50,000, 60,000 here and there. And by the way, You know, that amount of money is that's people's tuition. That's people's businesses, all those different things.
0: What happens when you confront appraisers with this kind of data and with these kind of assessments? Do they give excuses? Do they say, I just don't like black people? Like what happens when these confrontations happen?
1: Well, there's a couple of things. A lot of times you'll hear the language. This, by the way, Freddie Mac um, recently, the government sponsored enterprise that essentially makes housing capital liquid. They just forced the industry to strike words like undesirable from their vocabulary, things that appraisers would generally say that there's something going on in the neighborhood or the home, disparaging language. So they'll use language that is disparaging, but more often than not, their attitudes about a home is reflected in the comps they use, the comparisons they use. And so if if you have a home in a black neighborhood, it's more likely that they'll pick a home in a worse neighborhood on, with worse conditions to compare the price and and by the way I just want to I should back up they uh, most appraisers use what we call a price comparison model where they compare homes to others in a neighborhood to establish value so if anyone's ever gone uh, through a buying process or selling process you know that an appraiser they get other homes in the neighborhood to get a sense of value or similar homes in the neighborhood to get a sense of value but what we see oftentimes the black neighborhoods they take a home in a neighborhood much farther away um, worse conditions and when you use those kind of comparables you get a lower price We were actually on uh, uh, testifying in Congress in 2018 and representative Al Green when presented this data asked the members of the appraisal industry and myself do we feel there's housing discrimination? in appraising of homes. And I was the only person that raised their hand. Now The various uh, appraisal industry leaders, I should say, they were all there and none of them raised their hand. And, and we had the data in front of them. The data was there. Now, what they said after was, we don't break the law. We, we've never broken the law. We're following the rules. The problem with that statement is that for all of American history, I mean, most of American history, I should say, it was legal to discriminate against black people. Legal. People tend to forget this also, that the price comparison model that is often used, that is a relic. That is a vestige of our segregated past. You In your opening, you stated how we passed the Fair Housing Act in 68, but we still use many of the tools that were born during an era of segregation and discrimination. We still have these housing zoning ordinances. We still have culture around these things. So we might have changed certain laws, but many practices generate the kind of outcomes we're seeing today.
0: I want to go back to, I I always, you know, when I teach my students at Morgan State, I always talk about when you do a paper, you do a presentation, it's always good to have a sexy number, right? Some big, loud number that's going to freak people out. I want to go back to this $156 billion of lost wealth. You talked about that in some speeches to the Brookings Institute. How do we contextualize $156 billion of stolen wealth from black people primarily through the undervaluation of our homes when we try to sell
1: them? Yeah, $156 billion is a big number. In fact, It would have financed more than four million black owned businesses based upon the average amount black people use to start their firms. It would have paid for more than eight million four year degrees based upon the average amount of a four year public education. It would have replaced the pipes in Flint, Michigan, 3000 times, 156 billion would have covered all of Hurricane Katrina damage. And it's double the annual economic burden of the opioid crisis. Again, it's a big number. And so I always remind people of that because when things go wrong in black communities, you know what we do? We blame black people. We don't look at the wealth. I mean, wealthy. we
0: don't. <laughs> we don't. But oh, I get what correct.
1: you're saying. <laughs> that, that black people are blamed for the social and, 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 and conditions in, in black communities. We never look at at the policies and practices that extract wealth every single day and by the way that like people look at that 156 billion as some cumulative a number no that was using 2017 data that's just in one year um the amount of loss we are literally robbing people of the resources that are used to climb economic and social ladders and but and, and you you said something vitally important it's also the money people use to move to better neighborhoods, to get a better home so and to pass on that wealth to your children. So if you're losing equity, you're not being able to pass on the wealth. And one more thing, I just need to, to bring this up. Most people start their businesses using the equity in their home. People think that they're getting loans, business loans, loans or venture capital and all these other things. Now, most businesses are started with the equity in their home. It's not a coincidence that Black people represent about 14% of the U.S. population, but only 2% of the nation's employer firms, firms with more than one employee. That is a direct tie to the, the equity being robbed from homes, as well as the lack of home ownership, which is also tied to equity.
0: We're going to take a short break and we come back more on racism and property values. This is a word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. This is Jason Johnson, host of a word slates podcast about race and politics and everything else. I want to take a moment to welcome our new listeners. If you've discovered a word and like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And let us know what you think by writing us at slate.com. Thank you. You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today, we're talking about how bias in real estate practices fuels a racial wealth gap with Andre Perry, a senior fellow of Metropolitan Policy at the Brookings Institute. We've been focused on the personal costs bias creates for black homeowners. There's also a community price paid for this kind of discrimination. How often does discrimination in determining housing values feed into a cycle of gentrification and pushing black families out of traditional black neighborhoods. And I want to I want to add to this, Andre, because this is kind of a key thing for me. You know, when you devalue a home and people get less for whatever it is they can use to move somewhere else, it's like a poison, right? Like then every other home gets devalued. And people don't always sell to the best person. They just sell to whatever they can get out and say, like, oh, my gosh, if I can get this much money. So this process has the potential of impoverishing entire neighborhoods because all it takes is for one house to be devalued for it to hit everybody else.
1: Right. Absolutely. And in fact, I encourage everyone to actually pick up the report or go online and look for the report the devaluation of assets in black communities. And there's a chart in there that shows the percentage of the black community and the percentage of black people in the community and home prices in it. And what you find is the percentage of the black population increases, the home prices decrease. Um, and as I mentioned, to the point is they're 50% less in neighborhoods where the share of the black population is 50% are, are higher. And so what we're seeing is the intrinsic value of whiteness. And so if you're a white buyer, and you want a discount, guess where you go? You go to the black community. You're at that 23%. It's actually a 23% discount for many people. And that's part of the reason why gen, uh, that gentrification occurs. People are purchasing property at a discount. And then when more white people move in, the properties miraculously increase. And you don't have to do a thing. You just have to Put more white people in the community, and then all of a sudden, the property values are increased. But then, but you brought up something else. Then investment follows white people, because what we, we we've seen in D.C., San Francisco, Oakland, everywhere, places that had all the the infrastructure in the world, they had proximity to downtown, parks, universities nearby. No investment when black people are there. Then. All of a sudden, white people start buying up the block. Then you start seeing garbage pickup. You start seeing streets repaired. Then before you knew it, um, new amenities. And so we witness the intrinsic value of whiteness every single day in this housing market, and it's showing up in home values.
0: Have you done work on seeing, you know, okay, mail pickup, garbage pickup, you know the ability to get roads fixed, uh, the ability to get a snowplow through the area. Have you done research on showing how those things increase or decrease depending on the black population of a community, even when the housing values are relatively equal?
1: Yeah, we we've done some qualitative work uh, around a uh, another report that we did where we looked at the devaluation of businesses in the community. Just to summarize that we scraped all the data we meaning uh, jonathan Rothwell, myself and, and david harshbarger we scraped all the yelp data for businesses all across the country to get a sense of quality and what we found is is similar to the housing report black brown and asian businesses actually score higher on yelp but they get less re- re- revenue as they are situated in black communities and Those highly rated black businesses are losing or uh, businesses owned by people of color, I should say, are losing upwards of about $4 billion a year simply because of the concentration of black people, not because of the quality of the business. Now, when we ask a few business owners what happens when white people move in, they all say the same thing. They say, you know what? I've been asking for that street light to be repaired for years. No one repaired it. Then, then all of a sudden, you had a few white people move in. You have uh, graffiti being removed. You have all these different things that the business owners been demanding over and over again. And then, you know, in the one classic case um, for those who don't know D.C., There was a Metro PCS, a a a cell phone store located on Georgia Avenue, close to Howard University. That and it's been there, and they play go-go music outside. And uh, about a year and a half, two years ago, well, more than a few years ago, they developed a apartment building across the street that sort of uppity white folks. Moved in, and now mind you, this business, this Metro PCS store that plays go go, which is sort of if people don't know, go go music,
0: it's the official music of DC. Like you know, just like you can say jazz comes out of New Orleans, and go go is DC music dating back to the late seventies and the early eighties.
1: That's right. So they they've been playing this music for twenty years now. If you are a business in existence for 20 years in D.C., you're an asset that is adding value to the community. But the, the white folks in the Shy, the building called the Shy, then demanded that this proprietor shut down the music. They demanded so much, they went to then the CEO of MetroPCS, they demanded, and they won initially. Then a Howard student started a hashtag called Don't Mute DC. And it became a rallying cry for this proprietor. In fact, there were many protests and throughout the city, eventually the Metro PCS president demanded that, uh, or said that you could play the music. But the, the point of this is white people moved in and they wanted to scrub blackness from out of the city. And the point of all this is that there are people who are explicitly saying if we remove the remnants of black and brown people, our property will go up.
0: We're going to take a short break when we come back more on home ownership, discrimination and the racial wealth gap. This is a word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today we're talking about racial bias in property assessment and its consequences with Brookings Institute scholar Andre Perry. So what are some things that black families can do to combat this sort of structural devaluation and depreciation of homes when we want to sell them?
1: Well, one of the issues is we truly do need federal legislation. And so I always state there are limits to what we can do at an individual level without federal legislation. The Biden administration under Housing and Urban Development Secretary, uh, Marsha Fudd, recently announced the formation of the Property Appraisal and Valuation Equity Task Force, an interagency task force, and they're going to offer up a report to the president, you know, as soon as as February on some policy recommendations that they're going to offer up. And also there's the National Fair Housing Alliance. They're working with the appraisal uh, community to change the standards. But I'm very clear, we should assume, we should assume that we are being discriminated against in the home buying process. When you go through the home buying process, I don't care how much you think you know, find an advocate. Find someone who's gonna walk you through every step. You should look at your appraisal tightly. Um, Look for the comps, look for those comparables. And in addition, um, we should not have to whitewash our home, but I will tell you, black people are doing this all over the country. They're essentially saying remove the clothing, the hair pro- hair products, everything and I don't recommend that because it's dignity stripping at the end of the day and I don't I just don't believe in that but individuals are doing that. But I also believe in this that we need to work with fair housing advocates all over the country to create these kind of tests Without individuals doing it. And this is another reason why the Build Back Better Act needs to be passed. HUD can actually contract with nonprofit fair housing organizations to perform these kinds of tests. In fact, in the Build Back Better Act, it would give the largest amount of money um, to this fund, this fair housing initiative program that would allow for these kinds of tests. We've got to demand that this happens, because if if we do, instead of individual homeowners creating these kind of experiments, the federal government will then be able to hold people accountable.
0: So let me let me get this straight. I want to make sure because my my sort of follow up and concluding question was going to be, OK, what would specific policy look like? So what you're saying is there would be an independent government agency that could also be used to do appraisals of homes. That you could use to counterbalance what may be a biased home appraiser from a bank, and you could use that as well. Like, what is the yep. what would the actual policies look like that would address this problem, which seems to be mired in cultural, financial, and racial biases? Like, what's a government policy that would actually do something?
1: Well, there's um, two things. It would not be a government agency. It would be a separate nonprofit agency that would do the testing. One. Then two, um, they really do need a different model, the interagency task force PAVE that I described. What I think is going to come out of that is some form of automated appraisal system. Because in my report, what we did, instead of comparing homes only to others in neighborhoods, we widened the aperture and we compared homes across a metro area. We're going to move in that direction um, sooner than later. The appraisal industry Um, doesn't want that because obviously jobs are at stake whenever you're talking about automating something jobs are at stake but by the way appraisers are 90 percent white 75 percent male invariably the color of the person has something to do with the appraisal i mean it's not everything because if you put all black people in the appraisal position and they if they're doing using the same techniques you're going to get similar results Not the exact same, but similar. But what it looks like is creating some kind of accountability system, creating new ways to value homes and actually have some type of regular testing that will detect when a appraiser or a group of appraisers are acting poorly.
0: Andre Perry is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and the author of Know Your Price, Valuing Black Lives and Property in America's Black Cities. Andre, thanks for joining us today on A Word. Thanks for having me. And that's A Word for this week. The show's email is word at Slate.com. This episode was produced by Jasmine Ellis. Asha Saluja is the managing producer of podcasts at Slate. Gabriel Roth is Slate's Editorial Director for Audio. Alicia Montgomery is the Executive Producer of Podcasts at Slate. June Thomas is Senior Managing Producer of the Slate Podcast Network. Our theme music was produced by Don Will. I'm Jason Johnson. Tune in next week for Word.